is Radio Siams, a podcast of the Cornell Institute of Archaeology and Material Studies. Our mission? To probe the critical debates in archaeology in conversation between leading practitioners and the next generation of researchers. On April 16, 2018, archaeologist John Kreese from the University of North Dakota gave a lecture at Cornell University titled, Reassembling the Longhouse, the Iroquoian Longhouse as Socio-Technical System. The next day, he met with a panel of SIAM students and faculty to discuss his talk and two of his publications, the first being a 2012 article in the Cambridge Archaeological Journal titled The Domestication of Personhood, A View from the Iroquoian Longhouse, and the second was a 2016 article in World Archaeology titled Emotion Work and the Archaeology of Consensus, The Northern Iroquoian Case. It's time to think things over. Stay tuned for Radio Siams. Hello and welcome to the April 2018 edition of Radio Siams. Uh, we're here today with Professor John Kreese from North Dakota State University. Uh, uh, I'm Kurt Jordan. I'm the director of the Cornell Institute of Archaeology and Material Studies. And we have a group of students and faculty here to discuss two of Professor Kreese's recent articles, uh, including The Domestication of Personhood, uh, from Cambridge Archaeological Journal in 2012, and Emotion Work and the Archaeology of Consensus from World Archaeology in 2016. And both of these deal with uh, his research into Northern Iroquoian archaeology, in particular ancestral Wendat sites. So welcome, John, and, uh, and uh, I hope you're ready for some questions. I am. <laughs> Hi, I'm Blake Taylor. I am a first-year master's student with the SIAMS program, interested mainly in conservation, preservation, and presentation of textile materials. But um, do you think that the fractal or part and whole personhood model is in any way affected by longhouse living, or is the reverse true, where multi-valence um, identities and belongings shaped the way the longhouse was constructed? Yeah, great question. Um, the way I'm really thinking about that is as a kind of coeval recursive type of thing. So, I mean, maybe that's just like the way we get out of figuring out what is the true um, causal factor. But it, uh, yeah, I try and steer away from the kind of unicausal, like we have to pick that materiality causes ideation or, or the other way around. Um, so that being said, I see the house, the longhouse as fundamental to the, to what uh, transpires. Um, and so this is where some of the um, the practice theory and assemblage theory kind of comes in in the sense that um, I don't think that you would have ended up with that kind of fractal understanding of personhood or at least not in in the way that it did develop without the longhouse and the way that um, bodily experience was kind of mediated by it. Um, so um, does that answer your question? Hi, I'm Liam Murphy. I'm a first-year PhD student in the anthropology department here at Cornell. I'm primarily interested in the, the archaeology of the 18th century, especially kind of the Tuscarora migration into New York, as well as tobacco pipes. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm really excited to ask you a question about tobacco pipes, um, and especially about the sort of emotion work and the effective labor that pipes do. Um, I'm 
interested in what you think about the sort of work that the psychoactive kind of mm. components of tobacco play and that sort of emotional work and that sort of uh, interpersonal um, kind of thing, as well as any um, kind of, if there's any kind of spatial aspect to the, how you find those pipes in terms of the multivalent kind of spaces within the longhouse. So are they in the, uh, in the private spaces, the public spaces, inside, outside? Great, very interesting, yeah. I always love to talk about pipes. All right, um, well, with the psychoactive side of it, I guess the short answer is yes, I do think it's important. I think it's part of how um, pipe smoking became what it was. And there's always this tension, I guess, in the literature between the folks who go really down the shamanic uh, side of that interpretation, people like Von Garnett, um, who um, is an Ontario Iroquoian guy and has written quite a bit about shamanic interpretations of smoking pipes. Um, so there was a, a Calumet-esque kind of smoking pipe that was actually from a really early site in Southern Ontario. Um, I believe this was the Calvert site. And it was, I think about 1200. So it's, I mean, true Calumet, People would say that's not a calumet, you know, they didn't exist that early. But it has a lot of those characteristics. It's got the T-shape, um, it's stone, it has a, a kind of ring that suggests uh, an attachment to a long stem with um, some kind of thong or something, which historically was associated with those um, wrappings or feathers and things like that that you get with the calumet ceremonialism. Um, are you folks familiar with Calumet in general? I can explain that a little bit. So um, historically, especially in the in the broader plains and Midwest, this was kind of a particular manifestation of um, uh, pipe smoking as both a political and ceremonial way of making peace, making agreements, um, uh, and and that sort of thing. And it's it's extremely intertribal, um, and it kind of is a, one of the dimensions that I'm interested in in the way that pipes help mediate relations between groups. Um, so it so anyway, he takes that in a very um, shamanic interpretation, and kind of goes um, Amerindian uh, ontology in in very general terms and looks at South American examples. And he um, very much embraces the psychoactive side of it, seeing, um, you know, basically if you fast, if you smoke a lot of tobacco, especially Rustica, the native tobacco variety, it's got a lot of nicotine. Um, when you combine those activities, it can induce, you know, trance-like experiences. And he connects the bird imagery or the bird um, components to that kind of trance experience of shamanic flight and so forth. So I find those really interesting, um, but I do think that we need to broaden out that view. So there are, when I, when I look at Iroquois smoking pipes, I see a, a big spectrum of social contexts and, and balances for pipe smoking. I think it's a lot broader than a very uh, hyper-specialized sort of shamanic experience. 
and based on you know kind of mainly the ethno-historic uh, commentary like smoking appeases the pa passions and things like that I think that is probably re related to some of the somatic effects of tobacco maybe more not just psychoactive but just the bodily experience of of the rush um, and how people then culturally uh, what their cultural spin on that that bodily experiences, but I do I, I would see it in much broader terms than just the shamanic interpretation, if that makes sense. Um, right, and then you also asked about uh, the spatial patterning with with pipes. That's a difficult one. I haven't really, um, you know, I haven't done a big study, so this is basically anecdotal. But we find. Bits and pieces of ceramic smoking pipes basically all over village sites in southern Ontario. Um, definitely, you know, a lot of it's in the midden, and but you also find fragments throughout house areas. Um, and so there doesn't seem to be any very strong patterns in terms of, you know, they're not being segregated out spatially from other types of refuse in any highly consistent way that would just hit you over the head. But I do think that there's probably a lot of room to be done with detailed spatial analysis to say, you know, are some of these different classes of pipes tending to appear in certain spatial contexts. Um, one of my colleagues, a grad student at University of Toronto, um, Susan DeMarcar, has been doing that a little bit. And she sees, she's looking at differences in style between houses. And at least there's some uh, possibly statistic, statistically significant patterning in terms mm. of houses having dominant, um, predominantly one type of pipe versus another. So I think there's probably more, a lot more to be done in that. Um, so, but that's kind of what we know right now from my point of view. Hi, I'm Samantha Sanft. I'm a fourth year PhD candidate in the anthropology department studying the archaeology of northeastern North America. I focus on the exchange of exotic materials in the 16th century Haudenosaunee homeland. And I have a question for you on your article on emotion work. In that article, you discuss various examples of emotion work, most of them being processes related to production and or consumption. And I'm wondering if emotion work can also be involved in processes of acquisition. So in particular, I'm thinking about the wampum example and the acquisition of Rochelle. Yeah, interesting. Um, that's a great question. So in acquisition, I suppose, um, are you thinking in terms of I, I would definitely immediately think in terms of trade. And so in the sense that Emotion work is a big part of kind of establishing the the requisite type of relationship with trading partners. Partners, then I would say absolutely, you know, and that's where we see things like pipe smoking and then ultimately the calumet kind of coming in as a way of um, doing things like ceremonial adoption. So you've established a kin relationship with the trading partner, and that's that becomes the basis for all the exchange, material exchange that's going to happen uh, with that trade partner. And there's 
you know, it, to my mind, there's definitely an effective component to that. Um, it's about kind of laying the groundwork, cultivating a certain affect in that relationship. It's not just about, you know, uh, a business deal, <laughs> if that makes sense. And so you have to approach that that individual or the group that they re represent in a certain way to, to establish that trade. Um, are you also thinking, when you say acquisition, are you also thinking about, uh, say, people going out and, and accessing raw materials themselves? I was thinking both. Both, yeah. Um, that would be a really interesting idea in the sense that now I'm, I'm kind of thinking towards um, indigenous ontologies and the fact that these relations and these effective relations that one is supposed to cultivate are by no means limited to humans, right? Um, and so from kind of my understanding of how that would work, it would be equally true that one would need to cultivate those relations with other than human persons. So if you're gonna go collect clay to make a pipe, I wouldn't be at all surprised if there are, if there's effective work to be done, um, such as giving tobacco, um, possibly other types of actions in the context of accessing different types of raw materials. Um, in terms of archaeological evidence for that, that might be a little tricky, but it could be really worth looking at, actually. Um, so yeah, that's that's a that's an interesting idea. It's not one that I've really thought about. I've mainly thought about in terms of uh, interpersonal stuff, but I think that's a really interesting way to go. Thank you. Hi, I'm Dusty Bridges. I'm currently a second year MA in the archaeology program here, and will be transitioning to a PhD program in anthropology in the fall. Uh, I'm interested in the archaeology of indigenous societies in the Northeast, particularly. Um, pertaining to community restructuring following migrations of refugees and adoptions of um, individuals. So in that framework, I'm interested in how effective material culture um, would have, would interact with captives. Um, for instance, in Iroquois, um, and other parts of Iroquois and the Haudenosaunee territory, um, certain individuals were adopted into lineages. So if this was happening in longhouses, does the the relationship structured by the longhouses have to be consensual on the part of the individuals, or would that be a different process? That's fascinating. Um, I think that's a, those are great questions. Um, yeah, I mean, this is a lot of what this effective labor is all about. Um, and it, my understanding of how these adoptions and migration processes are working is that they, um, Going back to the fractal idea, they happen at all sorts of scales. So you have individual cap captives being brought back. You have families moving between local communities or moving longer distances. And then we have these larger scale uh, cases where an entire house seems, or group of houses maybe, um, picking up and joining another community, either by force or by choice. Um, and I think in all of those cases, there's going to be a lot of work that needs to be done. And so it would, you know, in the right context, you might be able to look at 
um, those patterns? Like, do you get an uptick in some of these classes of material cultures in, say, coalescent villages because they're dealing with particular kinds of political situations where the, those activi activities are heightened? Um, that would be kind of interesting. I'm thinking a little bit about the work that Peter Ramsden has done with the Kawartha Lake sites and where he's, I think, able to show that we have definite kind of St. Lawrence Iroquoian houses. And initially, they're kind of on the margins, right? They're on the margins of the community. They have distinctive pottery. Um, they may be outside the palisade. And there are some other examples in, in settlement plans of sites that have oddly, you know, they've got the big cluster with the palisades and you've got a house on the outside, right? And, and to me, okay, that's pretty interesting. It suggests some kind of um, ambivalent status or, or separate status for those folks. Um, and perhaps at some point, once those relations have been sufficiently cultivated, then those people are brought in or the palisade is extended. If you could get the, the chronology on that down to a nice fine level, you could see possibly some of those changes in material culture. And Ramson has looked at what he, I think he calls them hybrid vessels or something like that. Um, which might be a problematic term or is kind of interesting, but the, the idea that you get vessels that are negotiating these in-group, out-group relations by drawing on attributes and motifs from both uh, Huron-Wendat and St. Lawrence-Iroquoian backgrounds. So in the sense that I've, I've focused on um, smoking pipes and, and wampum and so forth, but I do think that, uh, you know, this is kind of a global thing and pottery is going to be part of that as well. So you could think about the effective labor that's involved with pottery decoration potentially. Hi, my name is Katie Gutman. I'm a first-year MA student in Siam, but I focus on um, the North American uh, colonial fur trade, particularly in the Great Lakes region. Um, like Sam, my question is about your work on emotion work and uh, artifacts that perform emotion work. Um, I was wondering when I was reading it, since uh, previously when I've read stuff about emotional labor, uh, labor and emotional work, um, it's usually in reference to invisible emotional labor performed by Western women in mm -hmm. modern society. I was wondering if you considered gendered aspect of gendered aspects of emotion work and related artifacts in Iroquois society? Yeah, that's a, a really good question. Um, I guess I haven't, not deeply enough, um, but there's a lot of work, I think, to be done there. Um, it's tricky because of the, of course, I'm relying a lot on Jesuit relations, and there's that inherent male bias. And I've been thinking a lot about smoking pipes and you know, it's received wisdom or conventional wisdom that smoking is a masculine activity, and pipe and potting and pottery making is a is a female activity. So we have these very clear stereotypes about who does what um, and why. Um, but of course, 
that's a that's a pretty old school way of thinking about these issues. And um, as Kurt has shown, you know, there's at least some circumstantial evidence to suggest that we have women who are also um, smoking. And um, similarly, with with the with the wampum press stations and things like that. On the one hand, it seems pretty clear that when you're dealing with intertribal, um, uh, you know, wampum belts in that very political context, that it's usually males who are doing the actual speaking, oral um, presentation, and so forth. However, right, we do also know that they are speaking on behalf of typically um, powerful women in the clan or the lineage segment. And so there's kind of, there's, I think there's a lot more that we need to do on thinking that through. It was interesting to me that Sagard kind of points out that it's women who are using wampum as a bodily ornament. Um, and again, it's, it's very tricky, it's very dangerous to assume that therefore it was just women, right? Um, that is highly problematic. I think that emotional labor is global enough that it's, it is being performed in important ways, both by men and women. And I think, broadly speaking, women's uh, roles in these societies is highly political. You know, it's not this, okay, we've got the depoliticized domestic uh, domain over here, and then the the men's realm of politics and intertribal affairs over here. So, um, with those kind of ideas in the mix, I think we could start to think through those things. Context, spatial context, is going to be important in terms of doing this kind of archaeology, and that's kind of that's where I want to head next. I've done a lot with the kind of big scale settlement pattern data that we have in Ontario that is um, doesn't necessarily have a really high resolution on artifact provenience. And then I've kind of gone to, with the emotion work paper, focusing on the artifacts themselves, but not really spatializing that. So the next step is to bring those things together. And then you can maybe start looking at, OK, are these contexts um, telling us that emotion work is practiced somewhat differently by men and women, um, or how does that relate to gender relations within the societies? One thing I've been thinking about a lot lately, and this is very a, a very preliminary one of these ideas that you get that's half-baked, so I'd be interested to hear your thoughts about it, um, but I see, broadly speaking, an interesting connection between the kinds of geometric, symmetrical designs that we have on pottery and other forms of material culture that are woven, broadly speaking. So palisades, you could see the house as a sort of woven object. Um, we know that people are making uh, woven mats and all other sorts of um, textile materials that is a good example of something that's invisible to us, but of course wasn't invisible at the time. Um, and so I, you know, in, in that vein, I'm thinking about citations and the way in which 
the pot is a citation potentially, right, if you buy that idea, um, of some of these other, this kind of universe of, of woven things. And the weaving comes back to both the value of certain types of labor, right, within the society, which may be gendered. Um, and if that's so, is the, is the kind of heart of political strength and value being constructed around ideas about um, women and women's roles in the society? Uh, and if so, how does that relate to, to other kind of domains? So I'm just kind of picking at that idea. I'm not exactly sure what to do with it. Um, a fellow PhD student at University of Toronto, Talena Atfield, just finished her dissertation, which I have not had a chance to read yet. Um, but her topic is on uh, later Iroquoian basketry. And she makes some pretty interesting arguments for connections between things like the basket finishing. So on the, the top of those baskets, you get the winding around the... I don't know the technical terms for this, but the, the piece that's at the top that forms the, the lip or rim, you get that kind of oblique winding, which is, at least on the Wendat side of things, kind of one of the dominant motifs. So there's a, a, a potential citation between those forms of material culture. I think broadly this is creating a sense of connection and a, kind of an aesthetic of value that values certain types of labor. So it'll be I, interesting to explore those ideas. I'm not exactly sure how to take it forward. Uh, okay, uh, John, Kurt Jordan again. Um, I wanted to ask you, I think, a more general sort of methodological question about your use of uh, historical documents and direct historical analogy. I think that you uh, you, you certainly use this, um, I, we all do, and, it, and my sense is that you do it in a somewhat different way than the than is than is typical in the Northeast. It's it's a, it, it feels more subtle to me. But I was just wondering about what you would say in general about how uh, how you would recommend that that colleagues and students approach primary source documentation and uh, and the use of direct historical analogy uh, and I guess either terms uh, in terms of things like qualms or reservations or more positively sort of justifications or suggestions as to the best way to use them. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, I definitely do use them extensively, right, for building up these arguments. The way that I feel uh, I may do it or approach it a little bit differently is that there has been maybe a tendency to be to want to draw draw like a one to one line with particular descriptions of particular practice and some specific object or archaeological correlate. So the field of view is really narrow. Like let's look for how they describe houses being built, and then let's look for those specific material correlates. Um, my approach has been to try and do a bit of an anthropology of Wendat culture in the 17th century based on a much broader reading of the sources. So to think about, okay, um, 
you know, can I do an ethno-history of personhood and, and bring together a lot of these disparate statements that might pertain to that. So anything from descriptions of how people are moving around space to explicit kind of theological or, or uh, similar types of discussions that the Jesuits like to get into about things like souls and so forth. Um, and so there it's less about any particular passage and, and particular statement, because what I've found is that those vary a lot, right? And there's a, there's a big limit to what any one particular Jesuit or other observer knew. There was a limit to who they're talking to. There's a limit to the context of their knowledge, right? They're not, and maybe this goes back to the old school kind of Eurocentric bias that we assume that um, this Western observer has some kind of authoritative understanding or view of what's going on. Uh, just to give that example of souls and discussion of souls, it changes throughout the different sources, throughout the Jesuit relations. Someone will say, okay, they've got two souls, that, and, and then they try and draw correlations with um, with Catholic Christian understandings, and so one is one is um, bodily and one is mental, and so it goes into these kind of Western categories of mind-body dualism because that's the way that they're taking this information and trying to make sense out of it. But you go on to another context, and someone you know, new soul terms suddenly come in, and it's it's messy, it's difficult to understand. There's a lot of danger of us really not getting it, right? And then there's the linguistic stuff, which is also really interesting and I think potentially provides some constraint or counterpoint to statements by people like Brebeuf about what was going on. But once you start following that through, you recognize that, okay, if, if somebody says that Oki means this type of thing, we need to step back from that and say, okay, we'll bracket that for now and see what somebody else is talking about what Oki means. In doing so, you can kind of build up a broader understanding and use the sources somewhat as a check against each other, and then hopefully come to um, a somewhat more realistic understanding. Once that's established, then you kind of have a, a broader basis for approaching the archaeology because you, you know, in the case of this uh, personhood paper, having kind of done that and, and built up a theory of polyvalent or part and whole ideas about personhood, it was then possible to think about, okay, if, you know, how does that, how is that related to practice in a, in a more global sense? Um, and then that, then I was able to bring that together with the with the archaeological record of kind of spatial organization and, and that side of thing. So, um, so that's kind of my my general approach as opposed to the one to one type of correlation. So it really implies that you need to do a very broad reading of of the documents and compare them. I mean, we've been in the class that um, I'm teaching that many of the people around the table are in this term. We see a lot of people that just sort of say, Sigard said it, 
where it's done, right? That right. men did this, women did this, and so, um, and I think uh, I think you're you're really encouraging a much broader, I think, in a, in a more subtle reading that acknowledges the limits of the sources as well as the variation that you see between sources over time, over space, etc. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and the other thing that just occurred to me too is that we have sort of the formal uh, generalizing statements that the Jesuits like to do, like they believe X, Y, Z. Um, but there's also these episodes, right? They talk about specific events, things that happen, and they're not really trying to put any particular interpretive gloss on it necessarily. But for instance, as I was talking about in my paper before um, yesterday, you know, this episode where people are complaining about making a house for people who aren't relatives, you know, that kind of can go into our understanding, okay, how is building a house related to kinship and kin making? Actually, we can get some interesting ideas from those descriptions of, of um, particular events that happened or that seem strange or confusing to uh, ethno-historic observers. Uh, another one that I find really fascinating, also in Sigard, he talks about this kind of phenomenon of soul desires um, that comes into the my emotion work paper and the idea that people dream for something and that this then becomes really important to their bodily well-being and, and health and that families and wider communities have an obligation to help fulfill that desire. And it's just so fascinating because Sigard talks about this weird event in which, well, for him weird, right? Um, event in which somebody had been given a European cat and somebody else really coveted that cat. Um, and basically they went into a fatal decline apparently because they had dreamed that they needed this cat. And um, so they got, they got really sick and then the gift was given and then they, they proceeded to get better. So I, to me, it opens up this fascinating world. Um, and Sigard actually does have a little bit, he tries to put a, an interpretive spin on it, but what was really interesting to me is that he does not dismiss the connection between the illness and the desire. He kind of tries to rationalize it as sort of related to some kind of psychological longing that leads to illness. Um, so anyway, so I think there's a lot in there, but you, you're, it's always about kind of triangulating multiple statements, both the generalizations and then the specific uh, cases or episodes that, that crop up here and there. Great, thank you. So um, pulling it back to the emotion work paper you wrote, uh, you did cite Foucault's subjectification idea. Now, would you consider the emotion work seen in the Iroquoian communities as interchangeable with Foucault's idea of subjectivity, subjectification, or is there some more nuance to? Yeah, very good question. Um, I like Foucault, but I'm using it really hopefully in the a most general way possible um, because of the context in which Foucault was working. You know, his idea of power is much more about 
Western style, you know, the development of modern institutions, right? And so when he develops his idea of subjectification, it's kind of in the context of things like biopower and the idea of biopower as this way in which broader institutions inculcate relations of dominance, actually, right? And that going in that direction doesn't seem fitting to the Iroquoian context in the sense that we're not really dealing with that type of inequality. Um, but I think that just because he develops that idea in that context, it doesn't have broader relevance. Uh, and I, I could perceive that as something that people might think, well, this, you know, this, why is he talking about subjectification and Foucault in an egalitarian context that doesn't make sense? But I think the heart of the idea that you have a connection between the, what Foucault called uh, micropolitics and ideas of what it is to be a subject, experiences of what it is to be a subject, that's going to be a dynamic that exists and plays out in any society. So if we're de dealing with a power dynamic, which is not based in top-down institutions, then that relationship between subjectification and micropolitics is going to be different. And that's where I think the emotion work comes in, as opposed to these kind of architectonic spaces that Foucault talks about, like prisons and so forth, that are really all about that kind of realizing you are a subject vis-a-vis -vis this um, developing hegemonic uh, institution. So yeah, so maybe people would take that on and say, well, subjectification is therefore not an appropriate term for that. But I'm, I prefer to kind of rescue it or appropriate it and see how it plays out in a different type of power dynamic, because I, I feel like that hasn't really been done. Um, and to me, it's, it's really central to how people are engaging with material culture in uh, effective labor. So, Hi, uh, this is Liam again. So uh, your work with the sort of creation of certain types of subjects in the Longhouse um, and the development of this this multi multivalent kind of uh, space and system as a way of of kind of facilitating communities and, and preventing the kind of accumulation of power reminded me a lot of a paper we read for a class with Kurt last semester by James Flexner on the this idea of counter power this kind of anarchist idea of counter power and wonder if you've encountered that idea and how you think that these kind of these the longhouse as a way of sort of limiting accumulation and, and speak, speak to that. Yeah, absolutely. And it kind of builds off what we were just talking about in terms of the power idea. Um, I do definitely think that's pretty central in the sense that we're, it provides an avenue for kind of deflecting the trajectory of labor and production away from those possibilities of accumulation. And so I do see it as basically inherently intertwined with a dominantly, predominantly egalitarian kind of um, thinking process. But counterpower is interesting 
I've been thinking about this a lot lately in the sense that one gets the sense that we're dealing with people who are very aware of, you know, this is not just an abstract possibility that one could develop a highly unequal society. There seems to be a concerted effort and a strong awareness that that may already be present or it's it's a real thing that they're contending with. And I've been thinking about classless uh, ideas about societies against the state. And granted, right, we're dealing with a situation where we don't apparently have any kind of state states for people to be reacting against or having those um, those models that they would be comparing themselves to or feeling threatened by. Although uh, the whole Cahokia thing does kind of come to mind, and it has there's a such a long tradition, I think, especially in the processual era of looking at siloed geographies where everything is supposed to be an endogenous local development, and all you know you social evolution happens in one particular place that it's been anathema to some people to to even want to think about what it would mean to have Cahokia and Iroquoian cultures developing in parallel and possibly in some kind of um, relationship where people might be reacting specifically against things that they could see happening somewhere else. It's tricky, right? Because we don't have a lot of material culture that shows major connections with that area, but maybe that in itself is telling us something, right? It's not that far away. Um, so, but yeah, in terms of approaching that archaeologically, there's probably a lot of work to do. There's certainly signs of interaction with folks like Fort Ancient, who are in that kind of interesting intermediary position and certainly have elements of the hierarchy that we see in in Mississippi and more broadly. Um, and it really comes through in the ethno history, the concern that people have with the possibility for inequality. So I think they were really responding to some palpably real thing. It wasn't just this abstract possibility. It's not, there's a, there's a tendency to lump tribal societies into this default egalitarianism. Like that's how, of course, they're egalitarian. They just haven't reached the next you know, level of complexity. So it becomes the absence of something rather than an active project, which I think you know, all of my work kind of really tries to say that's not the case. It takes a lot of work, and that involves material things that we can study archaeologically to cultivate and maintain um, you know, social organizations which avoid explicit hierarchies. With that said, um, well, even I think there's probably evidence for these kind of differences developing between family groups in terms of, certainly in terms of influence and how that fits into the mix is kind of interesting to think about. Um, but I wouldn't go as far as some to, I have thrown around the word heterarchy, but I've used it typically more as a descriptor of 
for instance, spatial organization in Wendat villages, it formally has hierarchical properties in terms of the network patterns. Um, but that's a bit different from the ideas of hierarchy that we get for quote unquote middle range societies where you have inequalities, but you also have sort of counterposed domains of power. Um, those models, I think, I think there would be a danger in kind of lumping Iroquoian societies in with that. There's clear checks on those, the development of, of real uh, distinction, certainly in access to modes of production. So. Hi, Sam again. Um, at your talk yesterday, and this is also relevant to the personhood article, um, you mentioned that builders can define relations of the longhouse inhabitants via processes such as kin making. Um, I'm wondering, can they also define relations via processes such as assimilation or colonization regarding the incorporation of outsiders or war captives? And if that's maybe representative in structures that we see that aren't longhouses, like short houses or anything that's outside of that realm. Yeah, really good question. So, kin making might be, I'm inclined to think it might be the dominant mode, or at least the ultimate consequence of various types of assimilation. Uh, processes, but I also think you're right that some of these different types of structures and scenarios where people are kept at a distance suggest that they have not been, you know, formally adopted and accepted as just straightforwardly uh, kin, at least in that sense that we would imagine it. Um, so I think there's definitely scope for looking at those other other types of relations, I suppose that links back in interesting ways to power because we do have these kinds of asymmetries if people haven't been fully adopted, if they have a kind of peripheral status, it's happening at the at the scale of larger social entities beyond you know nuclear families. Um, Yeah, I think there's a, there's a lot of work that would be need to be done, but it, that would be pretty interesting looking at satellites and cores and what are those, the relations between those actually. Um, yeah, that's that's fascinating. Okay, well, uh, th thank you, John, for your uh, for your time and your very thoughtful answers to our questions. And uh, great, it's been a lot of fun. You've been listening to Radio Siams, a podcast of the Cornell Institute of Archaeology and Material Studies. Our next podcast will be announced soon on siams.cornell.edu, where you can also find our entire back catalog and information about our undergraduate and graduate programs and faculty research. Radio Siams is produced in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association. You can find all AAA-sponsored podcasts at www.americananthro.org.